Life Audio. Hey, listeners, this is Barnabas Piper. I want to introduce this week's episode a little bit differently than we normally do because it's a different sort of episode. What you're about to hear is actually three chapters from the audiobook of The Happy Rant, our book that came out a few months ago. The audiobook released a little bit later. Some of you may have missed that. Since we are an audio medium and you're, you're used to hearing us through your earbuds or your car stereo or whatever, the audiobook might be perfect for you. So we wanted to give you a bit of a sample of what's in that audiobook. So it is chapter one where we talk about evangelical celebrity and all the weirdness surrounding Christian fame and why that's even a thing. And then chapter eight, where we talk about Christian money guilt. Why do Christians get so weird about money and why do we do so many weird things about it and put our money into envelopes labeled for different categories and all that nonsense. And then lastly, chapter 14, where we talk about manly men. What is it to be a man? What is masculine? Why do we get so crazy? Why do people light stuff on fire every November? And all of that stuff. So chapters one, eight and 14 from the happy rent audiobook this is published by blackstone publishing and it's available for purchase at downpour.com or wherever you get your audiobooks so if you're if you're an audiobook listener and reading isn't really your thing this is for you check it out and then go check out the full audiobook thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy this week's episode hi everyone if you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault listen up we have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. evangelical celebrity. I didn't know much about Christian conferences except that they seemed like church camp for adults, inasmuch as you pretended to be better friends with people than you actually were, and there was a snack every night. I was barely 30, and Why We're Not Emergent by Two Guys Who Should Be had just dropped. This book came out before Twitter, which I think is really important. In that, if the book had dropped in 2021 and was called Why We're Not Deconstructing by Two Guys Who Should Be, it would have been essentially the same book, but the reception would have been a lot different. In 2006, pre-Twitter, pastors were allowed to genuinely like something that was potentially uncool without having to do the calculus of how it would play on Twitter. Actually, I hope someone young and talented is working on why we're not deconstructing. I'd read that now, and I think we really need it. I was at the Moody Pastors Conference with my wife, whom I'd been sneaking past the Moody Gestapo all week. This is super fun because apparently there are no women in the men's dorms motif extended even to married couples. Anyway, want to meet Name Redacted, my co-author on Why We're Not Emergent, and co-speaker at the conf, Kevin DeYoung, asked, If you don't know Kevin, it's because he's had a quiet little career in the intervening years, basically dropping off the internet completely and selling a succession of moderately to not at all successful books. Wait a minute, that's me. Kevin is famous now, and for good reason. He's a good writer and thinker. But he wasn't famous then. And I didn't know the aforementioned celebrity from any of the other tweed jacket and bow tie types at this conference. Sure, I replied. And we ambled over to a middle-aged guy behind a table signing books, which pretty much sums up the entire vibe of the Moody Pastors Conference. Kevin introduced himself, and we started talking to the guy, whom I've since learned is, of course, incredibly accomplished. But then a funny thing happened as we were talking. The guy fell asleep. Like first it was half-lidded Garfield-type eyes, then full-on, chin bobbing down to his chest, and then waking up with a start. It was at this point that I fully understood the evangelical fame rocket ship that Kevin and I were on together. 
I finally understood the excess and decadence that draws people to the conference circuit. We then had a snack and went back up to our rooms. Life in the fast lane. That was my first taste of evangelical celebrity. Writing that book with Kevin, I've learned, almost made me like a kid who starred in a third-tier network show 20 years ago. Sometimes, even today, a colleague will introduce me as the guy who co-wrote Why We're Not Emergent, and I'll be forced to come up with an appropriate, self-deprecating, demure response. I'm like the Ricky Schroeder of Christian publishing. Serious question, though. Why do we clearly and obviously still want a thing that we know is bad for us? Meaning we clearly make fun of evangelical celebrity as our own means of dealing with the fact that we haven't made it to that level. Yet inside, we can still name a myriad of ways that we know that it's not good for us. We can probably separate evangelical celebrities into a few categories. Full-on, fame-embracing clowns. These guys are the ones who create a personal logo for their own names or initials, chase arena shows, and are pretty shameless about it. The inevitable scandal that follows when it turns out that money, fame, and power are all bad for a person's heart surprises no one. I pretend not to want fame because that's the appropriate posture, but clearly I still want it. This may have been most of young reformedom before young reformedom turned into paunchy middle-age reformedom. This may actually be us now. I'm famous and can actually handle it. Pipe's dad and maybe nobody else. I baptize my fame obsession by telling myself I'm called to minister to other influential people. The first rule of chasing fame is to convince yourself that chasing it is noble. I want it so incredibly bad but don't have the chops or the charisma to pull it off. See Twitter, where a lot of these guys hang out, or the leadership industry. Why do we want what's bad for us? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Why do I want that triple cheeseburger with large fries and a peanut butter shake for every meal? Because it tastes delish and momentarily satisfies my cravings for the kind of salty, sweet, carb-heavy Turkish delight that my appetite pleads with me to fill. So on a base level, celebrity and fame seek to fulfill humanity's intrinsic need for love, acceptance, and affirmation. But the result is akin to filling a cavity with whipped cream. The problem, of course, is that I like whipped cream. A lot. I think part of what's hard in this is that we don't have anyone telling us not to want the Turkish delight of fame. And for a while, we even have people telling us to chase it. In as much as we need, in 2021 at least, a platform to sell a book. And you chase the platform by doing some of the things that can lead to an unhealthy obsession with fame and persona. Things like chasing likes and follows that can be parlayed into a book deal. And for a while, it's great because the book deals and speaking gigs provide a little extra cashish, which makes us and our wives happy. These aren't, in and of themselves, bad things, much like the burger in Ron's example isn't a bad thing. Yet the result of consuming them almost every day is almost always bad. For example, when I was on social media, I couldn't even go an entire day without checking to see what people thought about me, my pictures, or my cleverness. I couldn't handle it. I wasn't strong enough. Posting the picture wasn't wrong, but checking all the time to see what people thought, that was unhealthy. For example, in Judges, Samson didn't end up blind and imprisoned and crushed by a ceiling overnight. It was a bunch of disobedient, hubristic flourishes, large and small, that got him there. I have a few thoughts. First, I'm hungry. Thank you, Ronnie. Second, I would include Tim Keller in the category of I'm famous and can actually handle it. I think R.C. Sproul, Eugene Peterson, and J.I. Packer would have fit the bill too, but they've since been freed from this temporal punishment called evangelical fame. But to actually address the question of fame, I think I come at this a little differently than y'all do, primarily because my dad has been Christian famous, in other words, very large fish in a very tiny bowl, his words, not mine, since I was just out of puberty. I came to think of fame as an interruption to a happy life. Here are a couple examples. Move-in day at Wheaton College my freshman year. I roll into Smith-Traber dorm trying not to look like I could taste my own anxious bile. When my turn comes at the check-in desk, the cute, smiling sophomore girl who welcomes me finds my name, gives me my room assignment, then says, Oh, and that guy over there has been waiting for you to show up for over an hour. Turns out a young man who lived in the area heard that John Piper's son, my other better-known name, was moving in and came over to help. It was so thoughtful. 
and creepy. And not at all how I wanted my first moments of getting out on my own and just being myself to go. Or there was the time I went to a Chick-fil-A in Griffin, Georgia with my parents and my two daughters to enjoy the only perfectly Christian kosher meal. Keep in mind, my parents have lived in Minnesota since the Nixon era. We ordered, we heard my pleasure at least four times, and we found a seat, only to be waylaid by the manager who proceeded to chew the adoring, gushing, Calvinistic fat for no less than 25 minutes while my dad politely nodded at him, my mom gazed into the middle distance, my food got cold, and my kids got bored. And this is not the only Chick-fil-A where we've encountered this same scenario. Maybe sanctified chicken is not for us. I would say my dad gets recognized and or interrupted two-thirds of the time we try to go out as a family, no matter what state we're in. So yeah, I associate fame with cold food, boredom, and a lack of social etiquette. Then again, the rush of being recognized is real. The rush of being invited is real. The rush of being paid is super real. It feels good for people to want me to speak or write or contribute my name to something. At least it's a rush when it's because of me, not because of my dad. Although it's often difficult to separate the two. But I'll save the identity crisis stuff for my therapist in my memoir. So I get the drug-like rush of fame. It's a high that demands hit after hit. I think we all have the propensity to think that we will be different. Sure, fame turned most other authors, pastors, or influencers into tyrants or cheats or whatever, but not me. I will balance fame with humility. I will overcome it with the most disciplined spiritual disciplines. I will climb the ivory tower and not plummet to my demise. So let me pose another question. How are we supposed to take warnings against fame seriously when they all come from famous people? It's hard to take a warning seriously when someone is basically saying, don't try to be as well-known or sell as many books as I have. I have a quick Chick-fil-A story. Once, KK, editor's note, see the Happy Rant Dictionary for explanations of names like KK, and I were on a road trip and we stopped at the Chick-fil-A in Louisville. Immediately upon entry, we saw a handful of the most fresh-faced, affluent, attractive-looking college kids imaginable, like top-of-the-Christian-gene-pool-type kids. I said to KK, I bet those are Christian college kids. Let's investigate. So we got a little closer and saw their shirts, and they were, in fact, the Wheaton College crew team, which is like the very top of the Christian-gene-pool. They look like they should have been in that swanky New England boarding school movie from the 90s. The one starring Robin Williams and a bunch of floppy-haired rich kids. Editor's note. We could not confirm whether the Wheaton crew team had nailed down a J. Crew sponsorship yet. In our minds, that would be a little on the nose. To your question, though, doesn't the warning kind of have to come from a famous person? In the sense that I can only really believe a narrative about fame being dangerous if it comes from someone who has lived it, or has at least been adjacent to it, and who has seen the dangers firsthand. So, for example, if your dad or Timmy K, both of whom have handled it well, were to say, I'm grateful for the platform the Lord has allowed me to have, but at times I was really tempted to vanity or self-glorification. Or, at times it really put a strain on my marriage. I feel like I would listen to that. Or even if somebody like Drisky, editor's note, see the Happy Rant Dictionary, who didn't handle it well, were to say something like, I chased this for about a decade and it wrecked my life for a while, I'd listen to that too. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Total sense. I guess the warnings I was thinking about were the ones offered to an audience of 10,000 reformed, aspiring, famous dudes by the suited and well-published pastor of a prominent megachurch. When he looks across the vast arena of beards and tweed and says, Stay humble, focus on your church, and do the ministry God has given you, he's absolutely right. But I wonder if the audience hears the voice of Charlie Brown's teacher— while only seeing the scope and size and glam of the literal and metaphorical platform. Right. It's like only famous people have the nerve to keep telling us to guard against fame, which can feel just a tad bit patronizing. I remember my good friend Carl Truman, who I've never spoken to before in my life, was on a panel I saw it together for the gospel years ago. With this very calm but agitated tone, i.e., Carl Truman, he asked why they never have any non-famous pastors speak 
to all the other non-famous pastors who compose the majority of the audience. Of course, it's because nobody would show up if you had Ted Martin or Ronnie Cluck doing a plenary sesh. But Carl felt like it was patronizing for all these mega church evangelist celebs to be preaching to, um, not the choir. There's kind of a weirdo mystery that hangs over the acquiring of fame, isn't there? Some evangelist celebs have done everything they can to become Christian famous, and they humbly-ish bask in the glow once they've achieved notoriety. Others never asked for it, but got it anyway, like your dad, Sproul, and Packer, unless we're totally wrong about Sproul, since he and Alice Cooper basically did like sleepovers and s'mores together. And then there's literally everyone else that will never achieve any fame, whether they desire it or not. But what's insidious about pastoral ministry in general is that every pastor has some level of, quote, fame thrust upon them in the sense that they stand in front of a, quote, audience every week and, quote, perform, which is enough notoriety to create problems for pastors at any level. I'm going to get in trouble for saying audience and perform, even though I put them in quotes twice, huh? Sounds like you're having some performance issues, Ronnie. I'm sorry about that. All this raises the question in my mind of why people want others to be famous. Why do people forget that pastors and authors are not different from the person in the pew or holding the book? Somehow truth, or the perception of truth, has been democratized. The person with the most followers, listeners, viewers, or readers has the best things to say. Seems to me that the person with the best things to say should have the most followers, listeners, viewers, or readers. Occasionally it works out that way, but it's way too easy to generate fame. And once you have it, people listen no matter what asinine things you say about best lives, real marriages, washing faces, or making America great. Zach Eswine discusses what you're talking about in his book, The Imperfect Pastor. He presents us with two pastors. One is faithfully pastoring a small church with minimal influence, while the other has a larger ministry and widespread influence, but is equally as faithful. So Eswine asks, why do we only invite the latter to speak at our conferences? The obvious answer is that there's nothing sexy or um, marketable about the unknown pastor doing all those terribly unnoticeable things. We want pastor influencer Matt Chandler from The Village who can preach our socks off and service Wagyu ribeyes from his meat ranch. Not Pastor Mike from Peoria, Illinois, who's going to tell us how the Wednesday night potluck has been picking up some real steam lately. Like Piper said, what's the real difference between Matt and Mike? They put their pants on one leg at a time, after all, unless Matt has some machine on his meat ranch that allows him to get both legs in at the same time. I'm just going to declare right now that it's highly possible. But the real difference is that only one has followers. Both are faithful, but having followers has become the unrelenting pursuit of our volatile era, and we can find 50 gray-shaded ways to spiritualize our quest for more. I'm going to turn it over to Ted Martin now. Baby, Ted Martin sounds like a relief pitcher from the Pirates in the 1970s, like the kind of guy who would sit in the bullpen and rip ciggies with Kent Tekulva between innings. That guy is, for sure, actually famous. By the way, a person really isn't famous for me unless they play a professional sport, were on one of the 12 records I owned in 1993, or act in movies. To me, none of these conference-chasing reform clowns are actually famous. But still, it's fun to talk about. I think Pipe hit the nail on the head. Our entire fame paradigm is flipped from when we grew up. It used to be that you had insane talent, and as a result, you got famous. Now the means are in place to build the platform first and chase a feeling that is so ethereal those of us who are a certain age still equate it with otherworldly talent of some kind. That's why it feels so comforting and real to me when someone who is actually talented, like Timmy or Pipe's dad, gets famous, and why it feels so cheap and fake and dumb to equate a certain amount of social media traction with actual fame. In the early 2000s, I got a chance to interview Michael Jordan when I was writing for ESPN. Solid flex by me. Even though he was at the end of his career and was semi-washed, that guy was famous. When he walked into any room, all eyes were glued on him, because none of us could do what he could do. Even other legitimately famous guys, like Desmond Howard, who was hanging around the concourse that night, deferred to Mike. 
Also, I feel like Carl Truman was the perfect guy to warn all of us about this, in that he was British or whatever, and semi-famous, except that everybody listened to him, nodded their heads in agreement, and then immediately went back to tweeting. I keep thinking about Ronnie's comment earlier comparing fame to triple cheeseburgers and milkshakes, and not just because I drove past five guys on my way home today. What sticks in my mind is how much more insidious fame is than fatty food. You can eat like trash for years, but as soon as you realize how detrimental it is to your health, you can change. Mix in salads, hit the elliptical, become pretentious. Oops, I mean, become vegan, go keto, take up CrossFit. Not only that, it's widely known and accepted that junk food is, well, junk. So we know we're shortening our lifespan one French fry at a time. And we limit our consumption, or maybe we don't, but either way, we do so willfully. Not so with fame. All evidence points to fame being dangerous. Vegas wouldn't even take bets on whether a child Hollywood or musical star will go crazy. We're rarely surprised when dirt comes to light on an athlete, a politician, an actor, or a tycoon. We've even reached the point where we can practically predict when a famous pastor will bite the dust. We know the signs. And then we just ignore them because of fame, a vicious cycle. And yet we want fame. Society encourages the pursuit of fame, building brands and platforms as a whole industry. And we even attach the success and reputation of Jesus to the fame of his preachers. So in one sense, we want fame like we want that burger. But in another sense, fame makes us blind and stupid. I know every bite of greasy, bacon-laden ground beef is bad for me, but sometimes it's worth it because I know I can jog it off and have a green smoothie the next day. Fame is different. It's hard to see the danger. It's hard to recognize the impending consequences. It's hard to see how it twists us. And once it has, we can't just sweat away the effects and drink a half gallon of humility to make up for it. You're getting pretty loose with the H word there, Pipe. But that unearths the heart of it, doesn't it? God gives fame and influence to whomever he decides to give it to. But with that blessing comes a responsibility to steward well what was never ours to begin with. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone mention celebrity or fame as being under the rightful ownership of God. We tend to think of it as some kind of decadent immorality sealed up in a gaudy glass case that nobody is allowed to touch. But it can be a gift of redemptive magnitude if stewarded with lowliness of spirit. Fame is poisonous when it increases one's appetite for self-glory over self-giving. I think that's a good word, that God gives fame and influence to whomever he decides to give it to. That said, let's just try to be good at something and then see what happens. Isn't it infinitely more attractive and interesting and winsome to be good at something and then just let fame happen to you rather than chase it? You should need to have talent to be able to touch the thing in the gaudy glass case. I'm a believer in the glass case. Not everybody should be allowed to touch it because if they can, it's no longer special. I guess for me, the chasing of it is the part that seems so unbecoming. The cloying I need this part of it is exactly the part that makes me want to run for the hills. Kent Tocolvi was good at throwing a baseball at a weird arm angle, and while Kent Tocolvi is kind of a running bit on our podcast, we all love him for it and for looking cool on 1970s baseball cards. If Kent walked into our studio, we would all defer to him, because he would be the most famous guy in the room, and a guy who can do what we can't do. We'd laugh at his unfunny jokes. We'd offer to blurb his unclever jock biography. Heck, I'd probably ghostwrite it if the numbers were right. He played in front of 40,000 people every night at work, and we'd all know it immediately. This is as it should be. The thing is, my kid came home from work tonight distraught over some work drama. I sat there and listened intently to him, tried to give him some fatherly-slash-biblical wisdom, and then gave him a hug and told him I loved him. When my younger son can't quite figure out algebra and we sit at the dining room table for hours laughing and swearing and trying to figure out if we'll actually use it in real life, spoiler, we won't. He doesn't care if I'm famous. My linemen at Humboldt High School don't care if I'm famous. They just want someone to teach them how to get in a stance and tell them good job when they get it right. Sometimes they need a ride home from practice. They don't need me to be a conference speaker. They don't even know what conferences are. They don't care. I need people in my life who don't care. I need to not care personally because I can't handle caring. 
I'm not strong enough. But equally important is me continuing to try to be great at what I do. I think God wants this too. And if he wants me to have the fame, he'll give it to me. Chapter 8. Evangelical Money Guilt From age 0 to age 18, I was blissfully unaware of money. I grew up in a blue-collar industrial and agricultural town where, by and large, nobody had much money. I mean, there were those kids in school who had new Jordans and nice jeans, but for the most part, if you were lucky enough to have a car, you were driving a hand-me-down from a dad or an older sibling. Then I went to Taylor University, which is an upscale Christian college nestled right in the middle of nowhere, about 15 minutes from where I grew up. A recent text from my friend Corey while watching a Steelers game. Roethlisberger to Fryermuth sounds like two dorms at Taylor. He won the evening with that one. That's where I was introduced to the idea that there were lots of wealthy kids driving Lexuses to college and walking around the dorm in super nice North Face jackets while planning their future ski trips. I was like the Chris O'Donnell character in Sin of a Woman in terms of not having any money or ski trips. Again, for 18 years, this didn't bother me. At Taylor, everybody came from money in some form or fashion, including the girls that I might potentially date. I had developed such a complex about it that on my second date with the woman I ended up marrying, I had developed a speech that I laid on her as I drove her in my parents' Buick Century to our dinner date in Indianapolis. I probably delivered the speech somewhere around Anderson, and it went something like this. Me. I really, really like you, but I just want you to know right now, up front, that I don't come from money. I don't have lots of money, and I may never have lots of money. Kristen, my wife of 24 years and counting. That's ridiculous, and you are ridiculous. Who do you think I am? We then probably made out, inasmuch as we dated and married before I Kissed Dating Goodbye became a thing. Editor's note, not to disparage Ted, and definitely not to disparage KK. But this was also well before True Love Waits. Otherwise, there would have been absolutely no making out. Anyway, with the money speech out of the way, we embarked on a fast and furious romance that culminated in a summer invitation to Kristen's family cottage on an idyllic spring-fed lake in northern Michigan. When I heard cottage, I thought of tiny log cabin because I had never been to a cottage in the sense of a place that rich people go in northern Michigan. She informed me, gently, that the cottage was more of a house, and a huge one. Because it was the 90s and I was intimidated, I did what any good 90s weightlifting meathead would have done and utilized my friend Russell's mom, who worked at a video store in town that doubled as a tanning parlor. She allowed me to do all the free tanning I wanted to do, which as a pale Germanic type wasn't much, but I at least arrived at Torch Lake with a nice golden brown tan to go with some great floppy 90s hair. Shout out to Mrs. Russell. The cottage looked like it came from a magazine and featured a framed set of house rules which were taken very seriously by everyone involved, which turned out to be Kristen's parents, grandparents, brothers, and the brothers' love interests at the time. If there was a term for panic attack in the 90s, I probably had several on that trip. The trip involved me, a college athlete, sucking at a ton of sports that blue-collar Midwestern kids don't play, which includes, but is not limited to, water skiing, ultimate frisbee, frisbee golf, and a card game called Dutch Blitz, which was dizzying and a lot to deal with. I longed for a cruddy weight room, and I think I even found one in town, which I went to for a little mental health time. The low point of the trip was some campfire time, which included her rich uncle, who stayed at the cottage next door, asking me, where do you see yourself in five years? At which point I shrank a few feet and then died. He definitely won that interaction, which is a thing that matters to a lot of guys who end up becoming rich uncles. Editor's note, rich uncles are usually Enneagram 3s or 8s. Thankfully, I was in love and would have gone into vast amounts of debt to secure Kristen's hand in marriage. The money thing is a weird one, because while evangelicals have a well-founded reputation for being unspeakably cheap and trying to get everything for free, reformed guys I've met fall into two categories— this first category is the cheap guys, pretty standard. The second, though, is the reform guy who is so hyper-capitalist that he thinks that his way of making a point in a culture gone Marxist is to channel his inner Gordon Gecko and go all 1980s conspicuous consumption. Redacted has baptized this guy's greed in a thin veneer of spirituality. Editor's note, for fear of being sued, we will simply say this guy's name rhymes with Rave Mamsey. These guys are fun to hang out with because they always have the best of everything, and as a result, eat and relax at a really high level. 
They can get a little insufferable, though, because as soon as a guy gets a little money in his pocket, he immediately becomes an authority on literally everything, from the government to how your favorite baseball team should be run. Knowing what's best for everybody is like a financially transmitted disease. To be fair, I did the same thing with spiritualizing poverty in the early 2000s, when we were just getting started and didn't have any money. And to be fair, again, I have a deep-seated and probably sinfully wary response toward Christians with a lot of money. Something that I know is sinful and stupid, but still do, is measuring my own worth against theirs based on finances. And I almost always lose. Why do I do this? And why are Christians so weird about money? I mean, there's got to be some kind of right and happy medium between being obsessed with money, like the world, obsessed with money but dipping that in a thin veneer of spirituality, the Mamsie Disciples, and poor. Right? I don't know how anyone doesn't have a weird relationship with money. I think the question is just whether or not you realize it. I was hyper aware of money from an early age. That's what happens when your dad preaches about wartime lifestyle. For those who aren't familiar, this is the mindset that since life is a spiritual battle, we should all live like the patriotic housewives of the 1940s who eschewed all luxuries for the sake of the war efforts until their men got home. It means there are no casual expenditures and having the nagging sense that every single one could have been cheaper. It means being aware of every single dollar all the time. At least that's how it manifested for me. I didn't learn how to budget properly until I was well into adulthood, but I knew how many dollars I did or did not have at any time. To make matters weirder, I was never sure if we were poor folks who should have been rich rich folks who lived poorer than we were, or just plain old middle class. My dad was a pastor, which was evidence that maybe we were poor. He wrote lots of books that people liked, which indicated maybe we were richer than I thought. Over time, our church grew, and I learned that megachurch pastors are often rich. A whole other weird thing. So maybe we were that. And I learned that my dad gave away every dollar he earned from book royalties or speaking honorariums, so maybe we weren't rich. We applied for financial aid when I went to Wheaton College, another super affluent place, so maybe we weren't rich. They didn't give us any, so maybe we were richer than I thought. College didn't clarify matters because Wheaton was just as polarized. I was friends with missionary kids who depended on financial aid and meal plans and stayed on campus during most holidays. And I knew private plane-traveling third-home-in-the-Caribbean kids for whom misplacing a Patagonia jacket was like dropping a quarter. Again, I was somewhere in the middle, though closer to the missionary kids. And I think being in the middle meant I always compared myself. Better off than some, and jealous of others. That has been a hard thing to grow out of, especially because hyper-awareness of money and love of money are kissing cousins. I am so happy we get to chat about money, given that it's not that big of an issue for society anymore, and most of us have a super healthy relationship with it. My experience growing up was, well, I don't know. It was all I knew, just like everyone else in the world. But we were one of those families who looked like we had money, but were actually struggling like heck. And here's why. Before FedEx and UPS kind of ruled the world, my dad won John F. Martin, started a local trucking company in the early 70s, and by decade's end, had experienced some measure of success. And during this time of plenty, and by the way, I was so little, I couldn't really benefit from it anyway, we moved to this poshy rural haven in Southern California called Carbon Canyon. Now, the canyon was a commuter paradise. Think of it as an off-the-beaten-path mountain getaway 30 minutes south of Orange County, where all the houses were on these one-acre estates and had long driveways that overlooked an embarrassingly expensive golf course. To live in the canyon meant something to people who were caught up in the not-really-hustle-and-bustle of Orange County. And what it communicated was that you were someone who refused to be held hostage by the social hypocrisy of OC and wanted a more tranquil and wealthy environment to raise your kids and the $1 million worth of horses you were likely going to buy for them. Two problems ensued in the Martin household. Number one, dad's business started to tank during the recession that hit in the early 80s. And number two, dad was the least frugal guy you'd ever meet, which is one of the things I loved about my dad and why I struggle with frugality. So the words broke 
and Martin became synonymous, like Brocarton. Of course, nobody would have guessed that there was anything wrong if he pulled a hard right into the palatial Western Hills estates and saw our custom-built McMansion shining like a beacon on the top of the hill. But you would have been slightly clued in had you walked inside during the summer and noticed that it resembled Heat Miser's lair because the air conditioner hadn't been running for weeks. You may have further wondered what was going on when the sheriff drove up our long driveway one morning and repossessed the station wagon, which was a downgrade from the 12-passenger Ford Econoline that we had to tragically let go. My point is that our theology of money is inherited from our parents. In church circles, it seems like you run into the more frugal types who oddly seem the most vocal. Of course, there's nothing wrong with frugality except when generosity comes in short supply as a result. And I think that's where I struggle. I'm not a frugal person, but does that mean I lack stewardship? Maybe, but it doesn't automatically mean that I'm generous either. The book of Proverbs has some things to say about these topics last time I checked. You guys both make great points. It's easy to be a materialist, like Pipe said, being hyper-aware of money, while clothing it in the persona of frugality. That's probably where many church people end up, if not just ending up in the kind of megachurch context that openly celebrates it. Like Ron said, the Bible has so much to say about this, which conveys its importance, yet I never feel like I'm doing it quite right. I feel like I'll probably end up like John F. Martin, enjoying it in the moment, but never quite able to save enough of it to provide the security my heart thinks it desires. But it is that self-same security that tempts me not to rely on the Lord for my daily bread. Another thing I struggle with is seeing the way many churches and church people and Christian colleges literally drool all over themselves when somebody with a little bit of cashish walks through the door. Those people often end up on boards or in positions of leadership that they probably shouldn't have. Editor's Note Often this happens because lots of cashish means the potential for large donations. Large donations lead to lots of influence, or should we say, leverage. Real talk here. This, money, acquiring it, saving it, etc., is probably the single greatest part of adulthood that I hate the most. For many years, I probably naively viewed talent and work ethic as the greatest investments I could make. I figured that if I put a lot of hooks in the water work-wise, it would all work out. But one of the gifts of adulthood, painful but still, is just the stark realization that there's really a ceiling on my talent. I mean, I think I'm good, but probably not good enough to make millions. This is okay, and I'm no longer bitter or upset about it. But it's also why, this semester, I literally have an undergraduate finance student teaching me about investing. Sigh. Scripture is not incredibly subtle about money. It never says, burn all the money. It says, don't let a love for money burn inside of you. The thing is, I always think, I don't really love money, but it sure occupies some significant space in my head. Is there a way that we spiritualize money that is actually masking a subtle, okay, not so subtle, greed at work in our hearts? In other words, who has more issues with money? The person who unabashedly does everything in their power to accumulate more? or the one who's constantly worried that they don't have enough. My problem with money is that it takes up too much real estate in my head due to worrying about it rather than the worship of it. I think. I mean, I have been known to lie to myself on occasion. But what's the difference in the end, you know? I'm not really sure how the following thoughts combine into a coherent idea. Maybe they don't. But these are some observations about money and the church that leave me stumped and uncomfortable. And I think some of them even tie in with what y'all have been saying. Money is absolutely a status symbol. When we find out how much someone else earns, we cannot help but view them in a new light. We might be impressed. We might be disappointed. We might be jealous. We might gain respect for them. We might judge them for how we perceive their use of money. This leads me to the second thought. We can't help but judge people about their money. We pity them. We resent them. We think they should use their indeterminate income differently. They bought a boat? Slave Whamsey would not approve. I wonder if they had a boat money envelope. And then we're jealous even as we judge. And of course the church loves capitalism. Get rich so you can give a lot. 
In itself, it's good advice, at least for the church coffers. The problem is all of the above words we have written. A lot of money is a temptation. See Camel's Traversing Eyes of Needles. Our propensity when we earn a lot is to keep a lot and spend a lot. But beyond this, we have come to see capitalism as a moral virtue, at least in the white evangelical church. There's a sort of heavenly glow around the successful businessmen. We cede power in the church to those who cut big checks, and we assume that a seat in the C-suite is a qualification for eldership. In the end, we often end up with a board of directors or trustees rather than, you know, elders who shepherd a church. On the other hand, there's a pendulum swing toward justification by poverty, sort of a bastardization of the wartime lifestyle, as if not having money is inherently more righteous than having it. Pay no mind to the sinful heart behind the curtain. Underemployment is a fruit of the spirit, and the patchouli wafting off their dreadlocks and unwashed vintage t-shirts is the aroma of Christ. And, as an added bonus, Birkenstocks even kind of look like Jesus' sandals. I'm reminded of Jesus saying not to let your right hand know what your left hand is doing when you give. So little good comes from being aware of anyone's money. I mean, very little good comes from me even being aware of my own money, regardless of how much it is. How can we, individually and in the church, lose some awareness of money for everyone's sake? I think we can probably stop fast-tracking rich guys into positions of leadership and stop convincing ourselves that rich guys are going to be amazing friends just because we want to use their yachts. I mean, the board of directors at your Christian college could probably do with one fewer rich guy and one more normal guy with unique insights. Can a rich guy be a good leader? Of course. Are all rich guys leadership material? They are not. It occurs to me that the church is all about multi-generational discipleship. We should probably be similarly about multi-socioeconomic discipleship. It might be interesting. We might learn some stuff from each other. Though I'm probably jaundiced by the fact that some of my most uniformly miserable experiences as a Christian writer have taken place when working with rich Christian dudes. Fascinating concept, Big T. It makes me think that ideally this kind of socioeconomic diversity should be represented on a board of elders, for example. And it might be. It is at our church. But when do we ever let someone who makes a small to modest income and manages his finances well ever speak into upper level financial matters in a church setting? Not trying to be too literal here, but it's the money makers who seem to get the biggest seats at the money table. And you better believe I almost typed in money changers table, but it probably didn't make enough sense. But to Pipe's point, a church will typically preach a sermon series on money when giving is down, but I wonder how much more valuable it would be to preach one when giving is up. To remind people that, number one, their worth is not in what they own, and two, richness toward God is the ultimate aim behind stewardship. It seems like this should be something that informs our doctrine way more than it does. Man, I love the concept of multi-socioeconomic discipleship, or at least leadership. It would make such a difference to have a church that honored and looked up to elders and other leaders who are blue-collar working stiffs with profound character and love of Jesus. When we elevate rich dudes to leadership, the implication is that wealthiness is next to godliness, and even beyond that, that wealth reflects God's favor and presence. It seems to me that the church— Here's looking at you, fellow pastors, needs to say a lot more and a lot less about money. Frankly, we probably don't need many more sermon series about giving, but we do need the kind of talk about money that puts it in its place. Money is just a resource. It is a means to something else. Some people have more, others have less. Some people are really clever with it, others are ignorant. Some people have a great plan for theirs, and others just wing it. Just like time or talents, or energy. When we, the church, talk about stewardship of money, we are usually misguiding people. First, because we use stewardship to mean giving. Second, because we rarely talk about stewarding any other resource. Stewardship means being wise caretakers of something that was given to our care. It isn't ours, so we must use it the way the owner, hint, God, wants. Our money was given to us. Our health and vitality were given to us. Our time was given to us. 
all of it needs to be stewarded. I think if we made the shift toward this mindset in our churches, if we discipled and preached this way, much of what is problematic about money would fade. Yep. It all comes back to Christian stewardship, which, to narrow it down, means everything we own is not really ours to own. The bottom line is that on this side of glory, money is always going to be a temptation. It's going to be something we have to stay constantly on guard against because our hearts happen to enjoy being ruled by a golden god or a green god or, more accurately, a plastic god with a chip since I haven't used cash or gold bars for currency in like 47 years. But money hits at the source of our security, and it does it in such a raw and illuminating way. I don't know how many nights my heart begins thumping rapidly in my chest because some financial concern forces its way into the stress chamber of my mind. Where is my theology in those moments? Because I know that although God doesn't promise financial success, sorry, Joel O, he does promise his faithfulness to provide for my needs. Why is it so hard to believe that? To layer down a bit, why is it so hard to be content with the needs he's been faithful to provide for me so faithfully all these years? Why do I think that somehow God is not as concerned with my future as I am, as if he is somehow unaware of what I'm going to need at 75, assuming I'm going to outlive every man in my family and make it to that age anyway? Sorry, this is getting dark. I have 97 more questions to ask but they'd be largely rhetorical since I'm trying to believe and trust that God supplies the ends and the means for the children of man. Speaking of children of man, King Solomon has some good stuff to say in Ecclesiastes about this sort of thing. And he says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Chapter 14 Manly Men I work at a university, and as such, it fills me with fear to even type the word man in a 2021 context. To some, even the word is aggressive and antiquated. I find that it kind of runs by department. For example, if you're a business administration major who happens to be a man, it's totally okay to walk in a certain way and be certain in a certain way and basically act like, stay with me, a man. If you're an English or social work major, this is off the table for you. It's a tough, confusing deal for those kids. There really should be a pamphlet. Instead, there's Twitter. This one is tough for me because I don't consider myself a razor-blade-gargling, chainsaw-juggling, fire-breathing man of the sort that is trotted out on a certain kind of stage at a certain kind of conference. Nor do I consider myself the sort of fey, arty, demure, kinda-kinda-kinda, effete intellectual that is currently all the rage in liberal arts settings all over the country. I'm not a deconstructionist. I'm not a male feminist. I believe things and feel a certain way about things, but not all things, and try not to walk down a hallway like I'm trying to disappear. Nor do I try to walk down the hallway like I want to kill everyone in it. It's a fine line. I've played and coached football all my life, and I like the kinds of qualities it can impart to players, though I fully assent to the fact that those qualities can come in other contexts. However, they are all contexts that require a certain amount of hard work and sacrifice and the risk of failure. Minus the hard work, sacrifice, and risk, I think it's safe to say that a person won't have those qualities. I'm trying to raise two young men. I don't especially care if they play football at a high level or box or do anything that I used to be passionate about doing. But I do care that they learn how to work hard, sacrifice for others, take calculated risks, and confess their sins with regularity. I care that they love their family and love the local church. I think all these things are quantifiably manly whether the man doing them likes eating razor blades or salad, or looks a certain way or doesn't. The thing is, I didn't hate the early 2000s drisky, be-a-real-man thing because it probably needed to be said at that point, even though it would go over like a lead balloon in 2021, and probably actually was dumb then. Editor's Note Ted was not alone. Thousands upon thousands of Christian men didn't hate the early 2000s drisky. 
He was compelling and touched a nerve and felt like he was filling a void. It's dumb now, too, because we've again reduced manhood to a starter kit-worthy set of purchases, flannel, boots, beard, beers, that don't necessarily make anyone quantifiably manly. And yet, there is this pressure to make sure people know that we're men, but not exactly like Douglas Wilson or insert another overly macho man men. For example, I feel like we now spend a third of our time on the program, making sure people know we think Chainsaw Con 2021 is stupid, or that we're too cool, intellectual, nuanced for Douglas Wilson types. It's confusing and exhausting, and I hate the whole thing, to be honest. Also, Pipe, I almost wrote a series of books on manhood for Moody Publishers back when my star was rising with them, for an editor who wouldn't have gotten them, and at a time when I didn't even get it. It would have been disastrous, and I'm glad it didn't happen. I feel a little on edge right now because I'm at a solid three-fourths on that starter kit. I just can't grow a beard. I do, however, carry a pocket knife pretty much always, so maybe I'm a cliché? I feel like all the manhood hullabaloo in the last couple decades has lost track of two very important facets of being a man. In fact, these are really the two defining facets. Anatomy and following Jesus. I feel a little queasy writing this because it sounds so simplistic and because gender fluidity is the current societal drug of choice. But I just can't escape Genesis 1, where God created man in his image, male and female he created them. And I also can't ignore that Jesus was fully God and fully man, and that he was the quintessential man. So God created approximately half the human population as men on purpose, and he meant it as a good thing. I know this is super basic, almost stupid basic, but when men begin to cower away from being men, and by this I mean genetically male followers of Jesus, because of our confused, genderless morass of a milieu, I think we need the basics. The same goes for the raw meat gnawing, hear me roar, women are the weaker sex and emotions are weakness, faux men too. Lit majors and pipe fitters alike need the basics. God made us this way, and now let's follow Jesus. I guess my question, and I'm going to try not to caveat this to death, is how can men take pride in being men without being the jackwagon version of men? What does it look like to live up to what God made us to be, and also what did he make us to be? Well, per the current social orthodoxy, we can't take pride in being men. But I love what you said there about what God did vis-a-vis creating men. It's not like he's rethinking it. Your question is so hard because there are so many people, ourselves included at times, taking so much pride in the wrong things. I'll put it in the context of parenting, which is, if nothing else, an exercise in trying not to take pride in the wrong things all the time. Both of our boys have significant gifts, but they both, like all kids, have really significant challenges and shortcomings. So it seems like we're always working back around to statements like, if they love the Lord with all their hearts, take care of their families, and love and serve their churches joyfully, then they're living a good life. All the externals, everything from career choice to income to sports participation to grade point average to beard length, matter very little in light of those other things. I would also prefer that they be humble. I'd prefer that they not be preening egomaniacs. I would prefer that they be the kind of men whose wives and children feel safe with while walking down the street at night. But the guy that I just described can look a lot of different ways, if that makes sense. They don't have to bench press Buicks or chew glass or be that kind of man. No, baby. I'm pretty sure chewing glass needs to be part of a quality manhood card until we enter glory and are able to finally swallow those mouthfuls of glass. You're making me real afraid with all this children feeling safe feminization talk. Is this the part where I need to assure everyone that I'm joking? Honestly, and maybe it's the academia talking, I wouldn't have known if you were joking or being serious unless you said that you were joking. Sigh. And Pipe, I don't think you're a cliche for carrying a pocket knife all the time. I do the same thing, primarily because I think knives are cool and it's fun to buy them, making me not unlike most 12-year-old boys. So maybe I'm not a man. I only ever use the knife to open eBay packages. Pocket knives? Really, boys? Anyway, I think we're describing a real thing here, especially given the fallout we're seeing from toxic masculinity, which so many have been affected by. But I'm with you, Big T. I think humility is the Christ-like cure for men whose tendency is to dominate, which undoubtedly stems 
from a personal experience they encountered in life. I'm thinking about my own dad here, who definitely came from the school where men fulfilled their traditional roles we think of men doing, and women did the same. I was certainly introduced to some unhealthy behaviors for sure, but also some character traits that might have characterized godly manhood as well. On a personal level, I've always been resistant to machismo, which everyone but a machismo would probably admit to as well, but we are seeing an evangelical subculture that equates manhood with aggression, which I think we'd all agree is not a page we read in scripture, even if Jesus would have overturned tables every day after lunch during his earthly ministry. Kudos to us for getting to page three of this thing before toxic masculinity was written, and unironically. Semi-seriously, though, it seems like toxic masculinity can be real, like abuses of power and all that. Though oftentimes it just stands in for any man with whom I don't completely agree. That worries me as, you know, a man. Tongue kind of in cheek here, but as I wrote before, a man's only options are to be gay, British, or Jimmy Fallon so as not to be seen as toxic. So to play a little devil's or man's advocate here, what's the Christ-like cure for men whose tendency is to do the opposite of dominate? Whose tendency is to, like, be demure to a fault? Because honestly, I don't see a lot of dominant types walking around anymore. Baby, I think you've singled out a huge issue, which is not advocating for the devil at all, by the way, because he's a big fan of demurring, which I'm also guessing is a small town somewhere in South Dakota. Demur is a nicer, more Downton Abbey version of what we might call passivity, if I'm hearing you correctly. And passivity is a thing, man, because it still seeks to gain control, but does it passively rather than forcefully. Baby, that's big. I buy it. Continue. What I mean is, passive people seek to retain control by making sure their environment remains stable and unaffected. For a passive person... Not dealing is how they deal with change or upheaval that can create potential discomfort. Of course, this is where the sin of omission can come into play in that the passive person will fail to do what they ought to do. Of course, all of us have areas that we are passive in, even if we can't be described as passive by nature. But I wonder if passivity is the new dominance, if you will. Social media has made it so that we can express varying levels of dominance but not have to face much of the social repercussions that come with our flesh and blood relationships. If this is true, then passivity in our flesh and blood circles becomes our de facto posture and one that is much easier to manage if we're being honest. I do know this. Passivity in church culture is a thing that needs to be reckoned with. Obviously, we've learned that it should be reckoned with more gently and lowly than, shall I say, more dominant leaders in the past have dealt with it, but it doesn't make it any less of a problem. Also, I don't think it's anything new. When you read the Gospels, Jesus had to deal with overly passive and non-passive dudes. It just seems more exaggerated now for some reason. I'm in on that too. I totally buy the idea of passivity being a manipulation ploy. Instead of a my way or the highway mentality, it's a my way or whatevs, I mean, it's fine, really, mentality. And then hurt feelings and seeking pity, which means victimhood. Ergo, control. It's also predictable, though. The passive men are the pendulum swing generation moving all the way away from our father's father's generation's way of doing it, but without any real heart change. I grew up under the fathering of a man who co-wrote the book on the roles of men and women, or complementarianism, if we're still allowed to say that. You would think by stereotype that he would be an aggressive, emotionally fragile and guarded, brash husk of a man. And you would be wrong if you thought this. He's both a gentleman and a gentle man. He writes poetry to my mom. He's quiet and reserved and careful with his words, especially in social contexts. His complementarianism is based on theological convictions drawn from biblical study, not fragility or insecurity or machismo. I, on the other hand, am much more prone to be brash and loud and confrontational. And I was even more so when I was younger. So I took my father's theological convictions and twisted them to fit my arrogant brashness through my teens and twenties, which is to say I was a chauvinistic jerk. I lacked conviction, 
and had done little biblical study and functioned by insecurity, familiarity, and convenience. By God's grace, my own failures and some strong correction from others, I came to realize my sinfulness and general jerkery. And then the pendulum swung. I resented my dad's position. I wasn't a male feminist, if one can really be such a thing, but I still lacked conviction. So I became passive and tried to control people, particularly my wife, that way. So yeah, I see the passivity as control thing as an overreaction to dominance as control. Except it's probably more insidious because it's so much less obvious. Yeah, I think passivity as control is more insidious because it's couched in a sort of goodness that the user has probably even convinced himself of on the front end. At least with dominance as control, you knew exactly what you were dealing with. Pipe, I appreciate your transparency there, especially the part about the temptation to use passivity as control. I've definitely been guilty of this too. For me in the area of taking an I'm cool with whatever posture as a means of getting people to like me. Real quick, I want to do a paragraph or two in defense of John Wayne, because equating John Wayne, an actor famous for portraying a certain kind of man, with everything evil and horrible and toxic about being male has become the de rigueur thing to do for a certain kind of Christian. So much so that there are now books out about it. One, I don't think there are actually a lot of Christian men taking their cultural cues from an actor whose last movie was released in 1976. Two, Though it would be easy to paint John Wayne as a very one-dimensional kind of glass chewer, I also feel like his library just as often delivers characters with a glass chewer with a heart of gold type arc. To wit, if Wayne's Rooster Cogburn character, being the kind of character who would defend the life of a 14-year-old girl, lower himself into a snake pit to save the life of said girl, and then ride to the brink of exhaustion and death himself to save her life, after which he declines all forms of payment and simply rides off into the sunset, refusing all book deals, blog tours, podcast appearances, and main stagers in the aftermath, is a terrible person, then please sign me up for being a similar kind of terrible person. Anyway. Can I ask you a bit of a personal question since you're raising daughters and I'm raising boys who, Lord willing, will one day date and maybe even marry Christian women? As a father, what are you looking for out of a potential spouse for your daughters vis-a-vis this dicey issue? I mean, on the raising boys side, I'm trying to get them to have enough backbone to actually have convictions about things that matter, which goes hand in hand with helping them to triage which things actually matter as a means of keeping them from being the insufferable guy who feels like he has to die on every hill. On the other hand, I'm trying to get them to equally value a humble, repentant spirit and a heart that follows hard after Jesus as the manliest thing. I guess that's a complicated way of saying that I want them to lead in a gentle and kind way, but I still want them to lead. But I wonder if there are things I'm missing. Also, for the record, I'm not trying to do the super reformed thing of arranging a marriage between my boys and your daughters, and it pains me to say this is less of a joke and more of a real thing in some circles. Thank you for clarifying the arranged marriage thing. I think I lack the requisite livestock to provide a proper dowry. As to the John Wayne Rooster Cogburn thing, I generally agree. I recently rewatched Band of Brothers, the greatest miniseries ever made, and it had me thinking along the same lines. Were those young men of the greatest generation emotionally stunted, unexpressive, insensitive meatheads? I guess, in a sense, if you're comparing them to the clowns from New Girl, Big Bang Theory, or whatever the latest show rife with aimless, uncommitted, oversensitive, oversexed, immature, grown-up boys is. At least the boys of Easy Company lived for something. They gave their lives for their country and for their wives, and were willing to cry about how much they loved each other 50 years later. Sure, they lacked the vocabulary to express deep feelings and affection, but they sure gave every ounce of life for both. We seem to have gone the other way now, where young men are armed with arsenals of words but lack direction, purpose, and passion for things that matter. Off the top of my head, here are things I would like to see in a young man interested in marrying my daughters. Personal responsibility. Does he handle his business, own his mistakes, show up on time, or communicate clearly if he can't, and work hard? Not to be confused with earning a lot of money or having professional prospects. I'm less interested in him being breadwinner than being the kind of guy who does what needs doing to care for himself and others. Integrity. I suppose this could be called character, 
Is he an honest person? Is he willing to fess up to failures? Does he present himself with transparency instead of making himself look better than he is? Does he have friends with whom he is honest, not just golf or work or beer buddies whose average maturity is about 15 and a half? Spiritual Direction I'm not expecting my daughters to marry Charles Spurgeon. I would like them to marry someone who is committed to spiritual growth and takes the church, as in a genuine local church, seriously. I think those two things compose a huge amount of what people mean when they say spiritual leadership, a complementarian buzzword. I don't need him to pastor his home. In fact, if he's keen on pastoring his home, I would strongly suggest she go looking for Dougie Fresh books in his library and Joe Rogan podcasts on his phone. Then I'd suggest she dump him. But I very much care if he follows Jesus and takes God's word seriously. Kindness. I really hope my daughters marry people who will treat them as equals and who enjoy their company. This takes a lot of faces, but I really want them to feel respected by and have fun with their spouses. Does he listen and take an interest in her? Does he notice when she needs encouragement? Or at least try to learn how to notice, since this doesn't come easy for many of us. Does he know how to have a real conversation where he shares ideas and observations and feelings and also listens to and responds appropriately to hers? Selflessness. I expect few young men to have this, so the question is whether he shows signs of growing into it. If he has integrity and spiritual direction, he's likely on the right track. I think this and kindness are neck and neck for the most underemphasized traits of a good husband among many complementarians. They want to raise young men willing to lead and die for their families, but not sacrifice and live for them. I just don't see how anyone can be a good husband or father without selflessness. I don't know if this answers your question, Ted. I just really hate the checklist way of writing out what someone should be looking for in a spouse. Well, he checked 16 out of 20 on my list. I can probably fix another two, so I guess he'll do. I'm mainly looking for character and spiritual trajectory. The rest will take care of itself. I think leadership is learned and earned more than claimed. So if a young man has character and is growing in the right ways, he can grow into a leader. Really, how many men are great spiritual leaders in the home at 22 or 26? I wasn't. We want to take a moment to thank the team at Life Audio for partnering with us on this podcast. Be sure to go to lifeaudio.com and take a look at the other podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. What do you do when the world around you is falling apart? It's amazing to me how many people are breathing air. They're going about their business and doing the things you're supposed to do. But if you really ask them, they know that on the inside, they are spiritually and emotionally and relationally dead. If we're not careful, all of us can experience that death. When what we need to do, even as the world around us is falling apart, we need to learn how to march when it would be easier to stay where we are and die. Join me each week on the March or Die show as we discuss that and so much more.